We're starting a brand new series called Out of the Box. And I'm gonna tell you a little bit more about it in just a moment, but it's, it really came as a result of us going to Israel. And how many went to Israel with us? How many went, oh, super. We're gonna be planning one in 2026 again. And uh, you, you, if you wanna, you wanna go on one of those because it'll just transform your life. <clears throat> but on this uh, trip to Israel, uh, our guide uh, was supposed to be Dr. George O. Wood. How many remember Dr. Wood when he would come here to speak for us? Just an amazing, amazing preacher, teacher of the word of God. And he was supposed to be our guide on that trip. But uh, Dr. Wood went to be with the Lord Jesus. It's so interesting. He and Sarah, uh, through these events, became buddies. And that's a whole other story how they became buddies. But he and Sarah became buddies. And Dr. Wood went to be with Jesus just three after Sarah ran into the arms of Jesus. Three hours later, Dr. Wood ran into the arms of Jesus. And uh, when it was time for the tour, they said, hey, they said, uh, his son, George P. Wood, uh, he would love to take you and host you on the tour. And I thought, well, he's got, he comes from good stock. He's got to know what he's talking about. And sure enough, I am telling you, we had a trip and Dr. Wood took us. We learned so many amazing things uh, just about Jesus Christ, the history, unbelievable things that you just, when you read the Bible, you're just not getting context for it. And we got a whole new context. But uh, George P. Wood, he's here with us this morning and uh, he is the executive editor of Influence Magazine. I don't know if any of you know what that is, but the Assemblies of God has a magazine that goes out every quarter of leadership to pastors all around the world. And I'm telling you, it is just incredible resource to pastors. But George P. Wood is the executive editor of Influence Magazine for the Assemblies of God. So it's a really big deal, and he's just, just incredibly gifted at what he does. But his wife, Tiffany, she had the privilege to join him on the trip. And Tiffany's sitting right there on the front row. Tiffany, thank you so much for being here. And uh, they have three amazing kids. And uh, they thought, hey, this would be a nice time to go to Grand Rapids. But I will tell you, we, have been, we were so blessed by George, just his insight. And the things we learned became the impetus for the series out of the box. And I'm gonna tell you, it's gonna be a little uncommon, it's gonna be a little different, but deeper truth and a deeper love for Jesus than you can ever imagine. But George is a gift to this body, and he's gonna join me this morning as we bring the word, but um, would you welcome George Wood to the platform? Let him know how much you love he and Tiffany. George, thanks for coming. Man, this is a treat, buddy. Thank you. This is a real treat. Oh, my. I, we have been looking forward to this for a while. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> I got to be honest with you, uh, George. Uh, a lot of great things you've done. Oh, I wanted to also tell you, George is the one responsible in Influence Magazine. He asked Brenda and me if we would do a story on Sarah and the legacy of worship, her worship for Jesus. 
And if you never got a chance to read it, we posted it, but if you never got a chance to read it, you hit that QR code there. And, or it's on our app too as well, but you can read that. George, thanks for letting us do that. You know, that's our, that's our top trending article right now. I think people have been really been touched by that story. So really? it's been up there for a couple of weeks now, but it's been the top article. I didn't know that. Yeah. And the studio uh, folks is moving along and uh, it looks like when we get around June sometime, we uh, will have a complete and we'll have a dedication day. It'll be a really great thing. But thanks for doing yeah. that, George. But, and thank you for taking us on the trip to Israel. We had a blast. First of all, we had a blast. And we learned so much. But the reason, George, George didn't realize it, but it was really doing a work on all of our lives there. And it's just, I mean, it's really rich what was happening there. But when we went on that trip, you know, I learned things about our perceptions of Christmas they're not bad, right? but they're not accurate. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. <laughs> and, and, but but it's so, especially, especially when we went to the uh, Church of the Annunciation and all these things, we start, and, and George started just telling us the history and all the background of all these things. And so George, this is just, this just is devastating to me. <laughs> but do you mean to tell me that all these lights and all these ornaments were not there at the first Christmas. I, I am sorry to tell you that none of these are original to the first Christmas. Oh, you got to be kidding me. Oh, no, they're taking them off the stage. Come on. Bring I, me. I feel like the Grinch that stole Christmas. I mean, it's, just, it's all gone. Sorry. Come on, bring Santa's elves out. Do something. Come on, let him repel from the ceiling something. I had a friend in seventh grade named Eric Axine, and he wrote in my yearbook, every party has a pooper. That's why we invited you. So it's a lifelong problem, folks. What a, what a press release, huh? Yeah, yeah, press release. So, but this got us into some things because the whole out-of-the-box premise is, is that there are things that tradition can fold in and I love the lights, and I love all that great stuff, and, you know, I have it, you know, and all these good things. But it almost gets to the place where you start putting God, that that's how God was, and, and God doesn't work outside of that. And then you start discovering that just about the time you him got in in the way things should be, you discover that your expectations are not realities. Mm -hmm. And that God may be doing something a whole different, and we start putting in context of our own life and our own circumstances. And, and people don't realize it, but we do that. They're not bad, they're not evil, they're not demonic. They're just perceptions that we can place on God. So let me just go out of the chute, okay? Okay. This, this is the one straight out of the chute, okay. Is Jesus' birthday December 25th? Great, so let's just start with the date, right? So, is that his birthday? Well, okay, so let me explain my answer, and then I'll tell you what it is, okay? So uh, Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 1 and 2 are the biblical accounts of Jesus' birth, right? Right. And they do not mention the day, the month, or the year of Jesus' birth, which we all know is what day? December 25th, right? right? And by the way, today's the first Sunday in Advent, so let me be the first person to wish you a very Merry Christmas. <laughs> and then let me tell you it didn't happen on December 25th. <laughs> so Thanks, really, George. Appreciate yeah, it. you're welcome. <laughs> Party pooper. Uh, so 
the Bible gives us a few clues, okay? And so there's one in, in Luke chapter 2, verse 8, that some commentators suggest may tell us what the time of Jesus' birth was. And it says this, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Now, in Israel, really the only time that you would have your flocks out overnight, you know, you would let them out during the day, but then you would bring them back to the sheep pen at night. The only time when you would let them out would be in the warmer times of the year, which would be the spring or the summer. And so some of those commentators say, well, maybe Luke is uh, telling us that this happened in, in uh, the spring. Interestingly enough, the first person to mention dates for Christmas was a, a theologian named Clement of Alexandria in Egypt, um, around 200. And he said that there was a debate among Egyptian Christians about when Jesus was born. The dates that he gave were April 19th through 20th or May 20th. Again, that's about the spring. Now, by the beginning of the fourth century, you, you see that Christians, again in Egypt, but also in other parts of the world, are starting to debate two dates, December 25th and January 6th. And by the middle of the fourth century, the church has really started to settle on those two dates. December 25th becomes Jesus' birth. January 6th becomes Epiphany, which means appearance, and that's when we celebrate the Magi coming to visit Jesus. But notice that the first mention of the date puts it in the spring, but the tradition finally settles on December 25th for Christmas and January 6th for Epiphany. And in between are what? The 12 days of Christmas. So that's how we get those traditions. It's a late tradition. The Bible itself doesn't say probably not December 25th, although it could have been. You know, I think they chose December I, I don't want to totally ruin the, the whole month, okay? so I'm glad they put it at the 25th because it helps you endure winters. There's yes. something to distract you. Yes, but, uh, especially so, in western Michigan. I hear it gets cold. <laughs> so, okay, so, so the date may, may not be December 25th, but there's one that that really, uh, really kind of got me and uh, is where he was born. Now, we know he was born in Bethlehem and the most been taught that Jesus was born in a barn because Bethlehem and the innkeeper was told him that there was no room in the inn. That's what we have. And, uh, but there's something that blew my mind when we went to Israel and we started discovering things that... The Bible actually says, it doesn't say that he was born in a barn or a stable. We make those assumptions about that. Where was Jesus born? In a stable, behind an inn, because there was a rude innkeeper, and you really messed me up, or was he born somewhere else? Right. This is really messing up some of my sermons, by the way. I right. just want you to know. Right. So we were in Nazareth. <laughs> which is where uh, the Church of the Annunciation is. This, this would have been the village that Mary lived in where Gabriel appeared and told her that she was going to bear the Christ child. And we're looking at Nazareth, the village, the, the excavations right. of it from that time. And, um, and I'm, I'm talking to you, and, and I explain what I'm about to explain to you. And you and Pastor Brenda looked at me at the same time and basically said, George, you just ruined Christmas. <laughs> Party pooper, okay? So here's the deal. Luke tells us, um, again, Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 1 and 2 are where we get the, the birth stories. 
And um, Luke tells us that Jesus at one point was laid in a manger. So I want to put up the scripture here. This is from Luke chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. It says, while they were in Bethlehem, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her, her, birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger. A whole bunch of Greek words. Did they get all the Greek words up yeah, there? Yeah, they did. Okay, right good. I can't read them any better than you can. So, uh, Greek words, which I'm not going to try and pronounce, okay? This is where all the controversy is, right? Because... How you interpret those Greek words determines how you mentally think about the circumstances of the place, the building where Jesus was born. So there's basically three ways to interpret this, okay? So if you read the King James Version of the Bible, this is where we get our notion of there was no room for them in the inn. If you read, however, the New International Version of the Bible, it says because there was no guest room available for them. So this, these are the translations of those Greek words that were up in the earlier slide. And then there's one scholar who puts it this way, because they had no place in their place to stay. Now, when we have a mental picture of Christmas, right? The mental picture is that Mary and Joseph come to a, a town crowded with people because they're all there to pay their taxes. And the inn is full. And so they have no place to go. So the innkeeper finally says to them, well, you can stay out in the barn because the sheep are where? The sheep are out in the fields, so there's no animals in there. And, and therefore, they gave birth in a barn, and, and Jesus was laid in a manger. That's what happens when you translate things wrong, though. Because if you go to Nazareth, or even if you go to Bethlehem, you find out something very quickly. A lot of people built their homes in front yes. of or on top of caves. And so their caves would have been both the place where they lived and also where they kept their animals. Now, I know all the farmers in western Michigan have a home <laughs> and then some way away from them have the barn, but in that time, in the first century, in the Middle East, they wouldn't have large flocks. They would have enough personal animals, and so they would all live in the same place. And think about it then. When the Romans did a census, which is what Luke 2 tells us, Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem to pay, the Romans would require you to go to your actual home. That is to say, where you or your family own property. So when we think of Christmas, we often think that Joseph is leaving Nazareth to go to his ancestral home because he belongs to the house and lineage of David. In reality, he's probably going to his own home. He left Bethlehem, went to Nazareth to get his bride. They were engaged, and it says very clearly in the text that they were engaged as they're going down to Bethlehem, but they had not moved in together. But by the time they get to Bethlehem, they're living in the same place. So they clearly, at some point, the marriage has taken place. So he's coming to his own home. And the reason why it's so crowded in the room is because you've got family members and midwives trying to help deliver this baby. There's not enough room in that place, so they have to go to some place that's a bit more roomy. So I want to give you an actual picture from the actual place where I ruined Pastor Sam and Pastor Brenda's version of Christmas. And this is a picture they actually took, right? So what you can see here is this is in Nazareth. 
Nazareth, and if you look, this looks like a lot of rocks. So when you go to Israel and you go look at an archaeological site, Lots of rocks. it's a lot of rocks, okay? So in this one, if you look at kind of like the middle right of the picture, there's a flat space. And if you look at the middle, the far right of that picture, you can see a little indentation. Where about? Wrong picture. Picture before. Go back to the other picture. You can see a little place where they would have had a stove, okay? This would have been the family area. This could have been the cataluma of the home. That's the Greek word that gets translated in or guest chamber or their own room, okay? Now, if you look down, now go to the next picture. If you look down, there's a cave in the back. See? Yep. This is part of the room and then part of the cave. And then go to the third picture. That next picture, back deep in behind it, you can kind of see two pillars. That would have been the place where that family would have stored animals. Notice it's all the same cave. Now, I don't know about you. How many of you own dogs or cats? Okay. So our dogs are house dogs. They live with us. They sleep with us, right? Uh, nobody wants a sheep in their bed, right? So you put them in the back part of the cave. Now, this isn't just Nazareth. Let me show you a picture from Bethlehem that we didn't yeah. get to see. This is from a, a village called Beit Sahur, which is right next to Bethlehem. This is the animal part of the house. And you can see in the middle left, there's a raised platform. That's the people part. The people part is higher and up front. The animal part is lower and in back. And the entrance is right through those two pillars. And over to the right of that picture, you can see another entrance. There's another room in there. Maybe that's the guest chamber, the Cataluma. So are you getting a mental picture yeah. now? Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is if you go to Bethlehem, everybody knows that Jesus was not born in an above-ground stable. The church there that has commemorated Jesus' birth since the fourth century, is the oldest continuously operating church in the world, you go down into a cave. So everybody in the Middle East knew that Jesus was born into a cave. It took Europeans who don't live in caves and certainly don't sleep with their sheep to make a house and an inn and a barn. Uh, and by the way, if you want to see the exact spot where Jesus was born, Show the picture of the marble and the star. The last picture in this one. That's the church of the nativity. That's exactly where Jesus was born, people. No, it wasn't. That's where tradition tells us when Jesus was born. And it didn't look that nice when Jesus was born there. If he was born there. Which he wasn't. But tradition tells us he was. So... So again, mental picture. We think Jesus got kicked out of an inn because there was no room. There was no vacancy at the Motel 6 in Bethlehem. And so Jesus had to go to the second best and the only thing open, which is a barn. That's not the case. Jesus is probably at Joseph's own house or the house of Joseph's family. And he's born in a family environment. And because it's so crowded, they put him down in the lower part where there are no animals. Probably because it's spring. Make sense? Mm -hmm. That's why I ruined all of your Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. So, uh, so here we are. Okay, so we're, you know, we, we've gone through this, that Jesus, the date of Jesus' birth, the 25th, it may have been the spring more, probably more accurately. Uh, he wasn't born in the stable. Right. It's more one of these, maybe this area where the animals were kept with all these other rooms. So 
Here's the one almost everybody has their nativity scene when they have, and they have all, they got the sheep there, they got the shepherds, they got all the characters, all the wise men gathered around, okay? So that's our, which we've seen those. Again, they're not wrong, they're, they're, not, they're not bad. But were all the characters, did everyone show up the manger at the same time? Everybody, did they, were they all there? Right, how many of you put up a nativity scene at Christmas? Yeah, right. And so normally, your normal nativity scene is like this, the one that was just on the screen, right? you got a star and an angel, and the shepherds on the left, and the magi on the right, and, and the animals there, and then Joseph and Mary. And so we get this uh, opinion, not only that it happened in a barn above ground rather than a cave, but that everybody showed up at once. And the reality is the Bible doesn't say that. Yeah, but, I, I, I but, George, but George, Amazon, you can order this well, morning and have it delivered tonight. I mean, right. it all had to happen at one time, didn't it? Well, Jeff Bezos did not write a gospel, though, Sam. So, you know, thankfully, because he probably would have charged for the Kindle version of it. Yes, but, um, right. <laughs> so, again, all I'm trying to do is, is change your mental picture here, yeah. right? So we, we think that everybody shows up at once. But if you pay attention to the gospel accounts in Matthew and in Luke, you find out that actually it's stretching out over a period of time. Because here are the key verses in Matthew. Chapter 2, verse 7. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. Which Matthew doesn't tell us. So thanks, Matthew. But then he goes on to say in verse 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. Here's the key phrase. In accordance with a time he had learned from the Magi. Now, first of all, we know from history that Herod was a bad dude. He killed his own sons. He probably killed one of his wives. He was a very violent man. So this isn't out of character for, yeah. for that kind of person. But from a time scheme, this tells us that basically you're dealing with a 24-month period of time. So when you put Matthew together with Luke, and you take all the stories that are mentioned in Matthew 1 through 2 and put them with Luke 1 through 2, you get a chronology that looks something like this. First of all, Luke chapter 1. Gabriel appears to Zechariah and tells him that Elizabeth is going to give birth to John the Baptist. And then next you get Gabriel appearing to Mary six months later and telling her that she would give birth to Jesus. And then Mary visits Elizabeth. And then John the Baptist is born to Elizabeth. And then around this time, Joseph learns that Mary is pregnant, which causes him some suspicion because they haven't slept together yet. So it's a miracle. But he decides in response to a vision not to divorce her, okay? Which would have been required in, in that society. If you broke it, it, today if you break an engagement, you just say, give me the ring back. Back then you actually had to divorce the person, okay? So after that happens, then the next thing that happens is that Mary and Joseph travel together to Bethlehem where Jesus is born. And the Gospel of Luke says that day shepherds appeared to them to visit Jesus. Eight days later, as a Jewish male, Jesus is circumcised. 33 days later, Mary and Joseph perform purification rites in accordance with Luke chapter 12. 
Okay, this is the only time. I mean, we, we know if he was born on this day, then 41 days later, he, the purification rites were performed. That same day, Simeon and Anna prophesy over the baby. And then, at some point after that, that's when the Magi visit. After that, the Holy Family escapes to Egypt because Herod wants right. to kill Jesus and all the other boys in Bethlehem. Uh, that happens, and then the Holy Family returns, and they realize that the political situation in Bethlehem still is bad, so where do they go? They go back up to Mary's home in Nazareth. And then finally, the last story we get is at age 12, Jesus appears in the temple, and he is debating the religious scholars. He's something of a religious prodigy. And so that's, that's the chronology, according to the Bible, of Jesus' birth and early childhood. But notice it takes place over a period of months, not all on the same day. So, George, we, we've, we've kind of debunked some of our, our uh, presumptions about, about Christmas. You know, was it, you know we, was it December 25th? Was he in a barn? I mean, you look at all this. Was everybody there? Now, we have all these things, okay? We have... We have the 25th. We have our nativity scenes with the Magi there. But in the grand scheme of spiritual things, spiritual matters, does it really matter that we have the 25th, we have our nativity set, and there's the Magi? I mean, we have a barn, and, and it was a cataloom, more of a cave type thing. Does it really matter? So my answer to that is no. <laughs> But yes, okay, no, it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things if we have a mental picture that on December 25th, Jesus was born in a barn because there was no room in an inn, and then everybody showed up all at once to visit him. Um, what matters is that Jesus was born, that he came into the world, Absolutely. Not, not when he was born. Absolutely. You know? Not, what matters is that Jesus was born, not where, not what kind of building he was in. What matters is that Jesus was born, born. not who came to visit him when. Right. So you can bring all the Christmas trees back on. Not now. <laughs> Maybe for next week, or well, I don't really know what your series is going to do. But it's okay to have a nativity scene. My wife and I bought one in Bethlehem, and it's our pride and joy, and it's right inside our interest. Uh, we just put up our two trees. We've got a third tree that still needs to go up. We have one tree that's dedicated just to s'more people. We have, s'more. my wife loves s'more people ornaments. You know s'mores like you eat over a campfire? Look it up. There's a whole thing of s'more ornaments, right? So we have a nine foot tree covered just with s'more s'mores. ornaments. I am not such a fundamentalist that I say, no, you cannot have this if you're a Christian. Go ahead and put them up. But in another sense, it is important that we pay attention to our traditions mm. for a very simple reason. Human traditions matter because they have the power to focus or unfocus our attention to biblical realities. Mm. They're good if they help us focus on what the Bible teaches. They can become dangerous, however, when they unfocus or even obscure what the Bible teaches. Mm. Now let me give you an example. In my household, every Christmas season, we watch three movies in this order. Home Alone, White Christmas, and Elf. 
And they're all based on a true story. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Based on a true story. Actually, we watch Home Alone a number of times every year uh, because my wife and kids love it. I hate it. You can only see Kevin McAllister beat the Wet Bandit so many times before you, you basically know everything. But I've learned in life, and I just want to say this to all the men in the house, happy wife, happy life. So we watch... Home Alone, <laughs> multiple times uh, a here. Good in fact, preaching, we just George. watched it uh, the day after Thanksgiving. We all sat down and watched it. <laughs> uh, but then we watched White Christmas, and then uh, we've added in Elf as well. Now, these are all Christmas classics, right? Yeah. Right? It's, it, they're fun movies. Okay. What's interesting is that all three movies are about one thing. They're about family. Kevin McAllister starts Home Alone by saying he wishes his family would just disappear. They leave him at home. We were just coming in through Chicago, and we actually took a oh, picture yeah. of, the, of, the, of the concourse at, at, uh, at Chicago to send to our kids and say, look, we were, we're where the McAllister family was, and they got a kick out of that. But by the end of the movie, he realizes he wants his family back, so it's about family. Now, White Christmas, uh, you don't necessarily get that it's about family, about family, but in, the, in reality, it's about men and women coming together to, to get married and to start forming families. And there's this great scene where Danny Kaye, who really wants his, his uh, partner in the musical industry, Bing Crosby, to find a girl, settle down, get married, and have nine kids. He specifies nine. I'm not sure why that is. And Bing Crosby keeps putting him off uh, and says he'll get around to it. And then Danny Kaye utters my favorite line in the movie. When what's left of you gets around to what's left to be gotten, what's left to be gotten won't be worth getting whatever it is you've got left. <laughs> so I just want to add, and this is free, this is not part of the sermon, but I want to add to all the young men yeah. who are single. <laughs> if you like a girl, go ask her out. All right? Uh, me getting married to Tiffany is the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Okay, I'm sure that Sam marrying Brenda is the greatest thing that ever happened to him. Now, the women might have a different perspective on that question. <laughs> then you get, of course, to, to Buddy, right? Buddy the Elf. He wants to find his father. This is all about family formation. That's all I'm trying to tell you. These movies resonate with us because they're about family. And we can look at Christmas and we can say, well, it's about a family. It's about Joseph and Mary and Jesus. That's a family. And we can say Christmas, according to the Bible, is all about a family because there's a family in the Christmas story. But that's not really what Christmas is about. The other thing that we can do is, what's the big thing that gets done at Christmas? We buy gifts, right? I love, we open our, our gifts first thing Christmas morning, right? And I love opening the gifts on Christmas morning because it's the first time I get to see what I bought the kids. I mean, it's just <laughs> awesome, right? I have no idea what's been showing up in the Amazon packages all year long. So I'm as excited as they are. And, and again, this is one of those things where we can think Christmas is about gifts, right? The Magi brought gifts to the baby Jesus. Kind of weird gifts. You know, I would think it's diapers good. and a... But they bring gold and frankincense and myrrh. And the frankincense and myrrh were for burial. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's kind of a strange story. And, and we can also say, well, you know, Christmas is God giving us a gift in Jesus. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But again, I want to say 
that's not what Christmas is about. Good. Those are good, good things. But when human traditions focus on Christmas as all about the family or all about giving gifts, what happens is we lose sight of what the Bible itself says Christmas that's, is. That's, that's good, George. So, so what, then what is it really all about? It, you know, those are great things. But what is the main focus, the theme then? What is the real biblical reality in all of it? Right. So if, if I look at the Christmas stories, the, things that I, the thing that I say about Christmas is it's really about two things. Number one, it's about the fact that Jesus is the king. Right. But then second, that his kingdom is upside down. That's how I would summarize what the Christmas story is starting, trying to teach us. So let's look at these real quick. First of all, Jesus is the king. The first verse of the New Testament lays this out in very clear detail when it says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Messiah is a term that indicated a specific king who was going to come and set the world to right. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, in other words, a descendant of Israel's great king, and the son of Abraham. And then, you know, does ever, has anybody ever read the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1? It's like a lot of unpronounceable names. There are 42 names in this thing, right? And it's like, well, what's the point of this? And so Matthew sums it up at the end. He says, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. And you may be thinking, why, why this symmetry? Why 14? Yeah. Well, in, in the Hebrew mind, um, words often had numerical values, and numbers had, had spiritual meaning. And so if you look at, in Hebrew, how do you spell David? You, you spell it Dalet Vav Dalet, D-V-D, right? Well, what's the numerical value of D? It's four. It's the fourth letter in the alphabet. What's the numerical value of Vav? It's six, because it's the sixth letter in the alphabet. Now, if my math is correct... D, V, D, D plus V plus D equals 4 plus 6 plus 4, which is equal to 14. When the Bible wants to emphasize something, especially in the Old Testament, it says it three times. Hmm. So in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah has this vision of heaven and he sees God, what does he say? He doesn't say holy. He doesn't say holy, holy. He says holy, holy, holy. Because God is the holiest. And what Matthew is trying to say is that Jesus is the Davidist of kings. Wow. If David was a good king, wow. but there's a better king coming, a Messiah, Jesus is that one. So it explicitly says he's a king. It gives us this little number trick that I think is really interesting. But if you, if you keep going, if you read through both Matthew and Luke, they emphasize this over and over. And this is what it's always astonishing to me, is that we get so caught up in the manger scene and the sentimentality and the birth that we forget what it's trying to say to us. So look at these verses. Jesus is called the Messiah. In Matthew 1, 1, 17, 18, 2, 4, Luke 2, 27, 3, 31. Again, he's a specific king that's coming to set the world to rights. He's called the king of the Jews in Matthew 2.2. 2. Now what's interesting to me about this is two things. Jesus is only referred to as king of the Jews in the presence of other political rulers. So here with King Herod. But at the end of the gospel, when he's on trial before Pontius Pilate, Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? 
And then the guards mock him. You're the king of the Jews as they're beating him. And then when he's crucified, what's put above the cross? King of the Jews. And Matthew is trying to tell us that in fact, Jesus is the king of the Jews, but not in a way that anybody would expect because Jesus is a king who goes through the cross to get to the crown. We're going to come back to that in a second. Um, notice Matthew says that he's a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The Magi bowed down to him and worshiped him. That's what you do with a king. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will have no end. There's this verse in Luke, a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. House means uh, dynasty in that case. Jesus' father is descended from the house and the line of David, and therefore Jesus is as well. And then finally, the angels announce a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. So the Gospels are trying to tell us that he's the king. And there's, I'm just going to read this. I'm not going to comment on it. But there's, I want to read this passage where Zechariah, when the angel appears to him and says, hey, your wife is going to give birth to this great prophet who's going to come before the Messiah. This is what Zechariah says. And I li like this passage because it really gets at it really gets at what was being expected of this coming Messiah. This is what Zechariah says. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 68 and following. Praise to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to his father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies, and to enable us to serve him without fear, and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Folks, that's frankly political language. And when we say that Jesus is king, we're using political language. And in fact, as Christians, we believe that Jesus is the king of kings. And not only the king of kings, he's the king of presidents. He's the king of prime ministers. He's the king of dictators and autocrats. But he's also the king of democratically elected officials. So the gospels emphasize over and over that Jesus is king. And if when we come to the Christmas season, we get so caught up in the family. And we get so caught up in the gifts. Mm. And we get so caught up in the shopping at the malls or online. And we get so caught up in the lights and the decorations. And we start singing, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. If we think all of that, but forget that Jesus is the king, we haven't understood Christmas at all. So first of all, he's the king. But here's the most interesting thing about kingship. Is that Jesus' kingdom is upside down. What do I mean by this? Uh, how many of you watched the coronation of King Charles? Anybody? Yeah, a few of you. Bad Americans. All of you who watched that coronation. Bad Americans. So here's a picture of him being crowned as the king of the United Kingdom, right? And it's, I mean, that's a lot of fur and ermine and gold and crowns and people in weird-looking outfits. It's very un-American. 
But, but his coronation embodies centuries, not only in the British monarchy, but of all monarchies. That they rule by divine right. That they have all this power. All the, the lords and the ladies come to celebrate them. And, and people send their embassies to them. And you know, if you think about King Charles, I think he's the third. Uh, the last two King Charleses got executed, but that's a totally different story. Um, <laughs> if you think about him, he, he was raised by one of the wealthiest women in the British Isles. Uh, he was educated by private tutors. Always in the lap of luxury. Never denied anything. People would come, and he was famous just for who he was born to. Uh, he hobnobs with the world's elite. That's what the world thinks right. of as kingship, right. right? So contrast that with Jesus. What happens with Jesus? Yeah. He's born to poor but righteous parents. We know that his parents were righteous because the Gospels tell us Joseph was a righteous man. Right? And it's very clear that God wouldn't entrust his own son with just any woman. He's going to find a righteous woman to give birth to the Messiah. Uh, but we know they're poor because when they do the purification rites, instead of offering a lamb, they offer doves. That's the poor people's offering. And so we know that they're poor. Um, who is it that come and visit him on the day of his birth? Shepherds. Shepherds were not considered right. the elite of that society, I don't think they've ever been considered the elite of any society, right? Um, but they're the ones who are invited into his presence. And even when the, the muckety-mucks of the world show up, they're magi. What are magi? Magi are Gentile, non-Jewish astrologers. Now, I don't know why God appeared to astrologers, because I'm not into that. You know, when, when you, when, if you ever look at the horoscope page on your newspaper, it always promises more than it delivers, okay? Uh, it always gets it wrong for me. Same with fortune cookies. I mean, somebody should sue for, you know, malpractice or something. But so who's showing up at Jesus' birth to these poor righteous parents? The marginal of society and religious outsiders. Hmm. They're the ones who are coming and showing up and Jesus himself, at this point, is a very vulnerable baby, right? This tells us everything about the way that God brings his king into the world. Because if you go back to that phrase, uh, king of the Jews, which I told you was only used at Jesus' birth and at Jesus' death, most kings exist to send their enemies to the cross. That's how they use power. They use it righteously, they use it to protect people, but often people in power use their power to sort of advance their own interests and advance their own career. So all kings before Jesus had the habit of sending their enemies to the cross. Jesus is the only king in history who went to the cross for his enemies. Thank you, Jesus. And that's the most upside down thing you're ever going to hear. Because Jesus isn't here for himself. That's right. He's here for you it's and good, me. George. It's real good. He wants to rescue us. And it's not just that he wants to rescue us, good middle class Americans that we are. He wants to rescue people on the margins right. and people from other religions. Right. Those are the people that he thinks it fit to invite Very good. Very to worship good. his baby. But 
It's, it's, it's Jesus' mother Mary, I think, who most captures the upside-down nature of the kingdom. So I'm going to read her song. Her song is called The Magnificat. And it, it, it's just a powerful and astonishing song and a beautiful song. But it tells us what the kingdom of God is really like. And so Mary says, my soul glorifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. He has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him. Anybody. From generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arms. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. <clears throat> he has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. I just want to focus on those verses, verses 51 through 53, where Mary talks about three categories of people. She talks about the proud. She talks about uh, the, 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 the powerful, the kings. So, and then she talks about the prosperous. And, and let me just say, as we're talking about pride and power and, and prosperity, that there's nothing inherently wrong with being self-confident or being proud of your achievements. There's nothing inherently wrong with having power. Power is simply the ability to get something done, right? There's nothing inherently wrong with prosperity. I think at this stage in American history, it's impossible for Americans not to be prosperous. We've set up a system whereby even our poor are more prosperous than a lot of wealthy people in a lot of countries. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But just as Jesus' kingdom, unlike all other kings, he doesn't use his kingdom to destroy his enemies and advance his own interests. Instead, he sacrifices him for the best of others. So when it comes to pride and when it comes to power and when it comes to prosperity, Jesus wants, he warns us against using those things for selfish interests instead of using whatever gifts he's poured into our lives to advance the interests of those in wow. need. And so if you find yourself at, at Christmas time where you're more interested in your social standing as a good middle class Michigander? Is that what you guys yes. are called here? Michiganders? Yes. Okay. Um, and we like it. If, if, you're, if you find yourself just glad that you have the, the, the status in the community that you do, and you find yourself saying, you know, I have a lot, but I want more. Mm. Or if you find yourself using power in ways that are only good for you mm. and not good for others, you've misunderstood the meaning of yes. Christmas. It's good. Because Jesus' kingdom turns the world upside down. Amen. Hey, I want to, I, I know I've debunked Christmas. I'm going to ask 
for just a little, little time. Because sure. I want to read you my favorite Christmas story. And it totally contradicts everything I've just told you. Okay? <laughs> but this was a story that my dad, your friend, my yep. father, would often read when he was a pastor. And so let me read this to you and then we'll, we'll close. It's, it's a story from Guidepost Magazine, 1966. It was written by Dina Donahue, and it's called Trouble at the End, and it goes something like this. For years now, whenever Christmas pageants are talked about in a certain little town in the Midwest, Grand Rapids maybe, someone is sure to mention the name of Wallace Perling. Wally's performance in one annual production of the Nativity Play has slipped into the realm of legend, but the old-timers who are in the audience uh, never tire of recalling exactly what happened. Wally was nine that year, and in the second grade, though he should have been in the fourth, most people in town knew he had difficulty keeping up. He was big and awkward. In movement and mind, he was slow. Still, Wally was well-liked by the other children in his class, all of whom were smaller than he, though the boys had trouble hiding their irritation when Wally would ask to play ball with them, or any game for that matter, in which winning was important. They'd find a way to keep him out. But Wally would hang around anyway, not sulking, just hoping. He was a helpful boy, always willing and smiling, and the protector, paradoxically, of the underdog. If the older boys chose the young, chased the younger ones away, it would be Wally who'd say, can't they stay? They're no bother. Wally fancied the idea of being a shepherd in the Christmas pageant, but the play's director, Miss Lombard, assigned him a more important role. After all, she reasoned, the innkeeper, which we know didn't exist, <laughs> the innkeeper did not have too many lines, and Wally's size would make his refusal of lodging to Joseph more forceful. And so it happened that the usual large partisan audience gathered for the town's yearly extravaganza of crooks and crushes of beards, crowns, halos, and a whole stage full of squeaky voices. No one on stage or off was more caught up in the magic of the night than Wallace Perling. They said later that he stood in the wings and watched the performance with such fascination that Miss Lombard had to make sure he didn't wander on stage before his cue. Then the time came when Joseph appeared, slowly, tenderly guiding Mary to the door of the inn. Joseph knocked hard on the wooden door set into the painted backdrop. Wally, the innkeeper, was there, waiting. What do you want? Wally said, swinging the door open with a brusque gesture. We seek lodging. Seek it elsewhere, Wally spoke vigorously. The inn is filled. Sir, we have asked everywhere in vain, but we have traveled far and are very tired. There is no room in this inn for you. Wally looked properly stern. Please, good innkeeper, this is my wife, Mary. She is heavy with child and needs a place to rest. Surely you must have some small corner for her. She is so tired. Now, for the first time, the innkeeper relaxed his stiff stance and looked down at Mary. With that, there was a long pause, long enough to make the audience a bit tense with embarrassment. No, be gone, the prompter whispered. 
No, Wally repeated automatically. Be gone. Joseph sadly placed his arm around Mary, and Mary laid her head upon her husband's shoulder, and the two of them started to move away. The innkeeper did not return inside his inn, however. Wally stood there in the doorway, watching the forlorn couple. His mouth was open, and his brow creased with concern. His eyes filling unmistakably with tears. And suddenly, this Christmas pageant became different from all the others. Don't go, Joseph! Wally called out. Bring Mary back. And Wallace Perling's face grew into a bright smile. You can have my room. Some people in town thought that that pageant had been ruined. That there were others, many others, who considered it the most Christmas of all Christmas pageants they had ever seen. And whatever the historical inaccuracies of that story, it gets one thing right. right. Jesus wants a place in our heart. If we ever look down on people, then we've let pride take up space in the end of our heart. If we ever so long to be, called, be part of what C.S. Lewis called the inner ring, the inner circle, Hamilton called it the room where it happened. If we get to that point, then power has taken up room in the end of our heart instead of Jesus. And if we ever get to the point that we'd rather avoid the poor than help them, then we've let prosperity occupy the room in the inn of our heart. If we're going to follow Jesus the King, whose kingdom is upside down, then we need to evict pride, and we need to evict power, and we need to evict prosperity from our hearts and say to Jesus what Wally Perling said, you can have my room. And there's no better time to do that than today the first day of Advent, when we remember that Jesus is king and his kingdom is upside down. That is good. That is really good, George.